catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. Lightweights Podcast. My name is Joe. Today we have a very special, a former nemesis of mine. Nemesis? You're a high school teacher. I never liked high school. Oh, fair, fair. Yeah, We I, had beef. We had serious beef. I represent all that you hate. <laughs> it was, you put me to sleep. You made me learn. You were, mm. I didn't want to be there. But now we're friends. Yes. We've reunited. Yes. And today we have, what should I call you? Mr. W? Uh, you can say Mr. Wiley. It's all right. I, I don't mind having my last name out there. Because now we're tenured. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, last time I was here, it was just Mr. W, and uh, it was a very, very secretive experience. But yeah, you know, now we're a little more, uh, a little more integrated into our school. So <laughs> we're integrated. We're going to be pushing the limits, pushing the boundaries, right? Yeah. Ex- exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you're an American history teacher. Yeah, primarily. So I teach this year. I'm teaching uh, world history for tenth graders, and then U.S. history for eleventh graders. But I would say probably my like go-to subject would be U- U.S. history. Okay. Yeah. And we've talked about certain topics that we want to go over today. Can yeah. you give what's the preliminary outline of that? Because American history is so cool, interesting. Mm-hmm. I did like history growing up. Okay. So I'm so that was the one class you didn't fall asleep in. I didn't fall asleep because there, there's, there's so much, especially with conspiracies and like what comes out like 10, 20, 30, 100 years later when things don't get redacted and stuff. Right, like, yeah. There's so much. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's my favorite part of U.S. history is like, you know, just going through stories and then finding out that, like, again, this actually happened. Because this thing, I'm not really a big conspiracy theory guy, but there's enough there that is confirmed, that is wild on its own, that you don't even need to get into conspiracy theories to have your mind blown, I think, at least. How long have you been a teacher for? So this is my fourth year. And have they changed the textbooks in just your four years there? We actually did change our all of our textbooks for the history department. Um coming into this year uh they get changed like once every 20 years so literally the ones i was using before like i used in high school like i literally recognize the books so they're not updated that frequently but we just got a new one um i can't even remember the the publisher but uh, i'm sure it's great we're not we're not super textbook heavy anymore either so like that's the thing too like u.s history and history in general like the way that you might have been taught it when you were a kid or i was a kid five years ago yeah yeah exactly yeah it's uh it's a little different now i feel like um Especially with the internet, like you can just Google things. So it's less, my goal is less like here's a bunch of facts that you need to memorize. And and rather it's like skill building um, and really hitting on big like more th- thematic topics. Do you get a lot of kids trying to cheat in your class? Oh, chat GPT has destroyed us. So it, it's bad. Yeah, I mean you can't, at least I don't know how to, to track it really. Um, and so you'll don't say that now everyone knows that they can do it. Listen, it's, it's out there. Uh, people are aware. I, so the, it's funny though. Cause like sometimes I'll come across writing that sounds really good. And I know, I know <laughs> we'll sit down. I could look at that student. Like we both know that this is not you. You say that to them. Yeah. Occasionally you'll, you'll confront them, but there's no actual proof that they didn't write it. And so it's more of this, this like understanding of like, oh yeah, like you and I both know you didn't write this, but you you did you got away with it this time you know so i i personally i've gotten rid of all like um 
uh, like electronic uh, assignments and stuff like that. I do everything handwritten again to try and get around chat GPT. Oh, so people can't write in essays? Yeah, yeah. So they have to, anything that they're writing is done in class, you know, where I can theoretically keep a closer eye on it. Um, or if it's done at home, I'm just under the the understanding that it might be plagiarized. It's weird. It's a weird thing that, you know, everyone in teaching is trying to figure out right now. Um, history is um, is certainly a subject that's impacted, but I think, you know, as bad as we have it, it's not like English where I, I have no idea how they're handling that type of thing. When I was a kid, I used to write answers on the inside of my wrist. Sure. You ever get any of those kids? No. Um, I, I'm always skept skeptical of, uh, of like water bottles and stuff. Have you ever seen videos where like somebody will like print a fake label that will have information. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, and they put it on the inside of the water. Yeah, bottle. exactly. And you know, those types of things are, are a little harder to track. Um, but yeah, you know, it, cheating comes with the territory. You, you know, when you catch them, you, you try and stop it. And when you don't, well, Hey, you, you got away with one, I guess. I don't know. I can't, I can't worry myself that much about it because just, there's only so much you can control. Right. So you're a young guy. Yeah. Do the, kids find you more as a friend than a teacher? So, yeah. So I think that there is a very clear like pro con with this. Um, I think undeniably I have immediately a, a better rapport with students compared to, to older teachers. I think immediately there's just this kind of barrier that's broken down because I'm like the age of, you know, their sibling or, you know, um, you know, or, you know, I'm only like 10 years older than some of them in, in some cases. At this point, I'm starting to age out of that a little bit, but especially when I started, it wasn't that big of a gap. So you immediately get that report, which is great. On the other hand, though, I feel like I have to work a lot harder to get uh, uh, respect. <laughs> like, yeah, like I, 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 to be clear, like I've had a lot. I've I've been very fortunate. Like I feel like overall, I haven't had too many challenges. But there are times where like you can tell the thought process from them is like I'm not listening to you. Like again, <laughs> like my my brother at home is like older than you. So who are you to, to have any authority over me? Yeah. But I think it's a net positive. Um, and I, especially something lately, I've been trying to really like intentionally appreciate is this time in my life where I'm a young teacher um, and where I have that kind of like natural rapport because of it because it goes away and then you know then you become the old history teacher and uh, <laughs> I don't know it might be a little harder to to get their their trust and their buy-in um, but yeah it's uh it's been fun yeah. all right what are the topics we're going over yeah I mean I got a few and yeah I'll tell you what I'll give you some that I uh, pulled out and I'll let you decide where you want to start um, we got a great conspiracy theory to pick things up with Project MK Ultra. Uh, there is the time America nominated a pig for president. Uh, the Roosevelt assassination, to be clear, Teddy Roosevelt. We could talk about presidential rankings, Mount Rushmore. Any of those stand out to you? There was one that you texted me that I thought was really, really good. Well, all of them I thought were really good. Yeah, I mean, they're, um, they're all amazing, though, right? <laughs> the Yippie Party, that's the one with the, the pig. Pegasus. The Confederate statue controversy. Yeah. Unfinished paintings, particularly the famous 1783 Treaty of Paris painting. Sure, yeah. Let's do the pig. Yeah, let's do it. So, and who's okay. the Yippie Party? Because yeah. that's kind of recent, 1968. Yeah, so I will say, especially um, in now having gotten to teach U.S. history for a couple of years now, and I've, you know, I've, I've started to drill down on what my favorite units are and all that. And I got to say, I think that the, uh, the 1960s 
is easily one of the most fascinating time periods in the United States. Um, a lot of it is terrible, to be clear. Um, it's not like it's all good, especially the 60s. There's a lot of bad. But, um, I mean, with the civil rights movement that is impacting not just black Americans, but also um, the LGBTQ plus community, Asian Americans, Native Americans, they all have a piece in that civil rights movement. It makes it a really um, compelling time period. One of the biggest parts of the 60s, though, that you're probably familiar with is the anti-war movement, um, in rejection of uh, the Vietnam. Vietnam War. And so by 1968, we've got this presidential election coming up. Um, at this point, Lyndon Johnson, who is the Democratic president, has bowed out of that race. He's not going to run for another um, another term. Uh, the Vietnam War has made him deeply unpopular at this point. And the Democratic Party in general has actually been kind of branded as the pro-war party because they've overseen this escalation of Vietnam. So the Democrats, they're on the ropes. Republicans, at least from like a younger person's perspective, Republicans are also not a choice because they, even at that time, are starting to represent more conservative social values and, and things like that, anti-drug movements and, and all of that. So they're not a choice for the young party, uh, for the young uh, younger population. You also have the American Independent Party, uh, which is fronted kind of by this guy named George Wallace. Wallace. He's a governor in in, uh, the South. He makes a run for president as well. He's literally a pro-segregationist platform, like literally will actively campaign on segregating the United States. Um, so anyway, so those are like your three main choices, not exactly a good selection for younger Americans. And so you get this party popping up called the Yippie Party, uh, which Independent. is- Independent. Uh, yeah, they're none, none of the three. They're technically, it's called the Youth International Party. Um, and they are a very much like, they're a slice of American counterculture. They're a rejection of all three of the, of the major candidates running for office. Um, like, they're deeply anti-war. They're deeply pro-drug. I think on a number of their flags, it literally, like, has a marijuana leaf on it. Like, that's their thing. Um, and they start to make a name for themselves, not only in this year, but in the years going forward, for often performing, like, political theatrics. And in 68, they nominate a, uh, I think, like, two-year-old female pig... What happened if they won? Uh, so it, technically, it's not a legitimate nomination. So this pig never got on like a ticket, but they did get the pig. They had the pig, which they named Pigasus the Immortal. Um, and Pigasus the Immortal was uh, touted as the Yippie Party's nominee for president. Pigasus ends up getting put on a stage and you got this Pigasus handler coming up and like accepting the nomination from the party. Um, there's pictures of this, too, of Pegasus being, like, thrown in front of microphones. It's hilarious. Uh, the police end up coming in and breaking up this entire nomination process. They arrest Pegasus as well. So the pig? Yeah, there are also photo photographs of a pig being taken by police and put in the back of a cop car. That's real? Yeah, it's very real. Um, and, yeah, so Pegasus was, was put up by the Yippie Party as just, like, a, a statement of rejection. Like, you know, like, your candidates are so bad that we would rather have a pig be the president of the United States than any of the mainstream candidates. I feel like that's going to happen this year. It could. I mean, so, <laughs> you know, in, in times of social division, you get these kind of um, these flashpoints. And, you know, while Pegasus never became a legitimate threat for president, like obviously that wasn't going to happen. And unfortunately, be, unfortunately, right. Um, but wasn't actually going to happen. Uh, it is a really good just kind of uh, measuring stick of like what society was like at this time and just how 
awful national politics was for a, a good portion of the country. Did you um, say the 60s were your favorite time period? I think it's the most interesting. I, I have a hard time saying favorite time period because, again, there's so much, like, terrible things that go on. Most interesting, yeah. It definitely is the most interesting, and I think— um, When was the free love? 70s? Uh, no, 60s. Yeah, oh, okay. so, like, you know, sexual revolution happens during the 60s as well in, in which people are starting to become much more open about, um, you know, non-typical sexual relationships and casual sex and all of that. I mean, not to say that they didn't happen before, of course, but that's when it starts to become a Public. little more mainstream. Uh, something else that conservative members of society kind of push against here. But, yeah, it's like no matter where you look, there's just change in the air. And I also think that um, the 60s is really the the kicking off point i would say for like modern american politics and it's it's kind of when like the the democrat party and liberals and leftism starts to take shape in like a modern sense it's where the republicans that we know today as a party kind of take shape that's where they start to adopt again like i said anti-drug policies um more fiscal uh conservative policies as well you get into the 70s and you have the republican party starting to adopt and come um, become united with like evangelicals and like religious populations. So um, I always like it just because it's it's where I can finally look at kids and say, this is a hundred percent relevant. Like you know, I I think all of it's relevant, but like you kid can't look at me and say I don't need to know this because it's like this is literally how we get the political parties that we have today. Do you think it started because televisions kind of became more popularized then? I, I mean, I think certainly you bring up a good point about like modern media cycles. Because um, then people could stay tuned and it's in their lives, it's in their living rooms. Yeah, exactly. Right. So what the what the radio did in the 1920s for nationalizing American politics. And also, by the way, um, stitching together American culture and making like a national culture as opposed to like regional ones, right? Like I always bring up the example in my class of, um, you know, how baseball games start to be uh, projected on the radio. And so now you don't have to like live in Brooklyn to see the Dodgers, right? You can listen to the radio and listen to those games if you're living in Pennsylvania or Ohio or wherever, right? So, um, and, and similar with the TV, right? These TV sets are going to become cheap. Um, pretty much everyone from like lower middle class and up are going to be able to afford these and have them in their homes. Um, and yeah, and it brings, you know, American politics and American culture into the living rooms of, of everyone. What was the unfinished painting story? Okay, so this throwing it back to the uh, the 1780s. Um, so America, uh, they, I love they, how excited you get over this. I I love it. I'm I'm a big fan. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's not every day that somebody gets to ask me about the Treaty of Paris uh, painting. So uh, I appreciate the question. Um, well, anyway, I just went to Paris and. Did I see it? No. No, it would be here. First of all, the other thing, too, throughout U.S. history and just history in general, there are a billion treaties of Paris. Um, so getting the date right is very important because it seems like every other war ends with a Treaty of Paris. <laughs> this is Treaty of Paris 1783 for what it's worth. America wins the revolution. Uh, yay, they're excited. Uh, they end up sending a bunch of diplomats over to Paris, of course, uh, to hash out what their like end of war treaty is going to look like with the British. Um, you get some notable figures. Ben Franklin's there. John Jay. How did they um, get there? Boat? Yeah, boat. <laughs> Sat on a boat for a couple of months. Um, John Jay, um, uh, John Adams, a few others that are less known. But anyway, you get, you know, a, a couple of big figures in American history. They are sent over there um, and they're hashing out the details of this treaty. And there is this famous painting that they were, they had commissioned like of the event of them you know, meeting with the British delegation. Um, and if you look at this painting, you'll, of course, notice that on the right side of the painting, it's completely blank. 
Uh, it's just completely empty, and there's not a single British delegate there. And the story goes that, uh, you know, they had to sit and essentially model themselves for this painting, uh, and the British delegation didn't want to sit for it. They, they were, like, upset that they obviously lost the war, and so they just ended up leaving. And so you get this unfinished painting with only the American delegation there. The, Brit, the Brits weren't into it. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, so just, just the left side is painted. Yeah, just when you think that, you know, pettiness is, is a modern invention, it's not. Uh, people were petty back in the 1700s as well. Uh, and, yeah, they were, they were not about this painting. Uh, I, I just think it's so interesting, though, because, um, again, you look at this painting that wasn't completed, and it tells you so much about the time period. It tells you so much about the relationship between Britain and the United States also shows you which is hard to understand today considering the u.s is like one of the global superpowers wait shows ben franklin was oh 1783 yeah, so this is right after we just became an, a country yeah exactly i mean we we wrap up the war pretty much in the early 1780s um it takes a couple years to get like a formal treaty at that point the fighting had, had basically ended but uh, still had to put pen to paper, uh, but yeah, they dipped. They weren't. They weren't into it. Uh, and I, I think it's just so funny to see this incomplete painting, and it tells you so much about um, about American American history, as well as um, I was starting to say, like the the lack of respect that America had at this time, where they're like, okay, we'll sign the treaty, we'll let you, we'll leave you be, but we're not gonna like make a big deal about it. We were um, always that way, huh? <laughs> yeah, we were always very proud of our accomplishments, even back in the 1780s. Did you hear those rumors about Ben Franklin and his basement? No, oh, what's the Franklin basement? You don't know this? I, enlighten me. Teach me something. Benjamin Franklin basement. There's He's like... He's were, a scandalous guy, for sure. Repairs on Ben Franklin's old London house turned out 1,200 pieces of bone from at least 15 people. Oh, my God. For nearly two decades, leading up to the signing of the Declaration of Independence, Ben Franklin lived in London... Blah, blah, blah. More than 200 years later, 15 bodies were found in the basement, buried in a secret windowless room beneath the garden. Oh, my God. Well, he, he's an inventor as well. Maybe he was experimenting and, and trying to, I don't know, come up with the next big uh, innovation. Yeah, because all of them had, I'm sure all of them had those dark, <laughs> dark secrets. Yeah, he, he's an interesting guy, too, because... Um, you know, at the time, when you think of, like, American founding fathers, um, he's old. I mean, I, I forget exactly, but I think he lives into, like, his 70s, 80s, which was really uncommon for the time period. And especially because when we think today of American founding fathers, they they are, you know, the the gods of America, right? We, we don't have, like, a Greek pantheon or a Roman pantheon of gods. We have the American founding fathers, right? And so we revere them. We, we think so highly of them. Most of them were like 25-year-old dudes just figuring things out on the fly, right? They're, they're just experimenting with what a government's going to look like. And so Franklin stands out amongst them as being a bit of an elder statesman, which is why he's sent over to, to help wrap up the war and, and hash out this treaty, considering that a lot of his you know, uh, colleagues are, are just young guys. So for them to come up with this episode is sponsored by Rosetta Stone. If you don't know, Rosetta Stone is the number one most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. That's right. You can now immerse yourself in the language you want to learn. So whether you're traveling abroad or you want to watch some foreign movies and TV shows, break down the communication barriers with Rosetta Stone. They've been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. Spanish, French, Italian, German, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, the list goes on and on. There's no English translation, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language. Pick up the language naturally, first with the words, 
then phrases, then sentences. It's designed for long-term retention. Plus, there's the built-in true accent feature, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation, like having a personal trainer, but for your accent. So don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Lightweight's podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That is 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem now for 50% off at rosettastone.com today. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Bill of Rights and all those other rules. That's pretty mature of them, no? Uh, Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean... Like, that's really big insight to have for a country. Yes. Yes, absolutely. It's always... It's what I think is fun about history, right? Because you get a especially with founding fathers and American foundational text, right? You get a lot of arguing over them today. Um, You know, and I think traditionally speaking, right, people more on the left are a little more quick to be critical of it. People on the right are are a little more quick to, uh, again, celebrate them. Um, I do think that, like, you look at the American Constitution and the Bill of Rights and things like that, and as flawed as it was considering it excluded almost everyone, um, it does lay a very unique um, foundation that is going to be built upon later for other groups of Americans, right? so, yeah, in, insofar as they're mature, I think that they, they were doing something that was relatively unique at the time period by creating a government that, at least in theory, if not always in practice, uh, recognized the rights of, of common people. Um, right. Not so much mature, because obviously, like, times change and things change, but in sure. that sense of when they were, like... yeah. Well, I don't know. Think of think of uh, any twenty five year olds you know in your life, and could you imagine them starting a government that would go on to last two hundred and fifty plus years? Yeah. I mean, that's pretty remarkable, right? So, <laughs> I wanted to make you uh, a big cool teacher. Okay, this year, great. I would love that. I got you a gift. Here you go. This is for you. What What do we got here? It oh is a pair of Heelys that you can <laughs> ride throughout the hallways of school. Oh, my gosh. Look at these. And they're cats because I know you love cats. Cats rule everything around me. I'm going to be flying into the new year in style. Pretty cool, well, Let man. me tell you. These are great. Thank you, Joe. Yeah. Can I, can I confess something? You already have them? No. 
I've never rode Heelys in my life. Oh, I thought you did. I do. Do I come off as a Heely guy? Well, you're my wife's brother's best friend. True. And when I originally gave him to Brandon, and he <laughs> turned him down. <laughs> So who better than the guy that loves cats? You. Oh my gosh, I truly appreciate it, and I don't. I don't mean to sound ungrateful, but that's so funny. The idea of like, oh, Brandon didn't like these. So, no, I love it. The cats are great. Look at this one. It's got a little, uh, little middle finger sticking up too. I don't know. You might have to yeah. censor those out in school. Yeah. True. I also wow. got you something else. Oh my god. I'm gonna need the aloe bag back as it's not mine. Okay. I can. I can do that. But you could have everything inside. This is a new tradition I'm starting here. I, I love this. Come on the Lights Weights podcast. You get a get a gift. What the heck? Oh my gosh. Whoa. You have a podcast, Lads Who Game. Shout I, out. <laughs> I do. Shout out to the lads. But Dang. It's, uh Legend of Zelda Switch cover Switch, pad. This is incredible for Tears of the Kingdom. Oh my gosh. So cool. Oh my god. Look at this. Oh jeez. There's like a Legend of Zelda book and then a carrying case. Thanks so much, Joe. That's so kind of you. Oh my gosh. This was uh this was a big game this year one of the one of the top games of the year absolutely oh do you God. have it I do uh, the lads have a, a podcast uh, with all of our thoughts on it as <laughs> the well lads. the lads yeah we we uh, we jumped on this immediately oh my gosh so cool well I appreciate it look at this post holidays and I'm still getting gifts yeah Merry Christmas I appreciate it oh my God thank you and I'll be sure to give you this bag back. <laughs> At one point in time the CIA drugged Americans to try and uncover secrets of mind control. Indeed they did, yeah. So I, I think I was mentioning earlier, I don't normally go in on conspiracy theories. However. Um, and, and that's because you don't have to because you have stuff like this that is confirmed to have happened that's wilder than any conspiracy theory that you could ever come up with. Um, so the project, uh, it was done by the CIA, CIA from like, I think 1953 uh, to the end of the 60s. It's called Project... Um, MK Ultra, or sometimes referred to as MK Ultra, and over the course of this like ten plus year time period, the CIA was trying to uncover the secrets behind mind control. Um, the context of the time period is super important, right? It's the Cold War. Uh, 1953 is like the beginning of the Cold War, so tensions are high. And I guess from what I've read, the initial goal by the CIA was to figure out if they could. Um, force Soviet spies and agents that they might find or capture into revealing state secrets. So you basically drug them, hopefully get them to, you know, under the influence of these drugs, um, spill the beans on Soviet secrets. They also wanted to know if this could happen so that they could better, like, protect their own agents that were across the world at this time. Um, but, of course, to do this, they had to experiment. Um, and I don't know if you know, but Forcing people to take drugs in order to, you know, mess with their mind is not exactly something that the public is going to be very stoked about, right? It's not a, not a winning campaign message. And so the CIA for years did this behind closed doors. Now, in some cases, you had, like, experiments that were set up on, like, a college campus. You ever Where did this a, happen? Where did this happen? Cross, cross the country. Right, in various, you know, uh, places, cities or around the country. Um, California was a, a big hotspot, though, obviously, just because of a lot of population. Um, so you'd, you have these happen where, like, people would sign up for experiments on a college campus uh, or studies, right? And then they'd get there, and the study wouldn't be what they thought it was. It would be these drug experiments instead. Um, oh, they weren't testing them on the Soviets yet. No. 
This they was were on American, American citizens. Jimothy. Yeah, American citizens. Um, so you had them come in. They, they would oftentimes be experimented uh, thinking they were signing up for one study, but instead getting this. However, it gets worse. Um, they also, Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> it also uh, often was the case where they would experiment and force drugs on or into uh, prisoners. Uh, and they would specifically go for people who were imprisoned or had some sort of criminal record because they figured that these people would be um, or that those people would be harder to kind of fight back. They, they wouldn't have the social standing or the financial standing to be able to really make a big deal about this, right? Especially if they were imprisoned, no one's ever going to hear from them. Um, the probably most infamous part of MK Ultra, at least the part that stood out to me as being the most cruel, uh, was this sub-operation that took place, I think in San Francisco, if I'm remembering correctly, in California somewhere at the very least. It was called Operation Midnight Climax uh, <laughs> in the 60s, I know, uh, yeah. where the CIA would set up fake brothels and then men who went to these brothels expecting to have a sleepover, you know, uh, would instead find US a sleepover. <laughs> you try to be delicate in class. This is how I would explain it in class, right? But you know, a sleepover, um, and they would instead find, uh, you know, U.S. government agents, and then they would be like strapped to a chair, locked in a room, and drugs would be, you know, forcibly administered to them. Here's the thing, right? And what were they trying to get out of those regular people, though? Again, they're trying to see if they can break people. Um, down enough that they would like confess secrets and things like that or again even more sci-fi try to control their minds and then they let them go back into the public they let them they'd let them go because if you've got someone who goes to a brothel and then instead of you know purchasing a prostitute for the evening they get drugged are they going to be able to come out and explain that that happened to them yeah they'd make a tiktok absolutely not not in the 60s well, here's the thing: to to admit that they were drugged on a drug, they were drugged. They were that, confessing to a crime. They also were confessing, likely to their you know spouse, their families, and to the broader public that they were seeking out the services of a prostitute. And so that kind of social stigma around sex work um, kept these these secrets ironclad because people were too afraid to tell on themselves. Right? They couldn't bring this to anyone. Did they fi end up finding out that they could control people? No. That, I mean, I, you know, not that it would justify it, of course, to be clear, definitely wouldn't justify it, but they didn't even accomplish the goal that they were seeking to accomplish here. Um, this also happened in Canada, which I, I can't remember the exact detail, but I, I think it was the CIA financing similar experiments on Canadian citizens within Canada. I think Montreal was like a hot spot for that. So it happened, you know, across the our northern border as well. Um, and yeah, so in the, the 70s, right after Watergate in 1973, um, the CIA starts freaking out because obviously there's a lot of scrutiny being placed on the government over the Watergate years. And they end up destroying a lot of the documents that were on the record, you know, documenting these experiments. Of MKUltra. Um, of MKUltra, right. Got rid of them. Um, there ended up being, I think, a couple thousand documents left over, which is what eventually came to life in the mid-19s, uh, came to light, I should say, in the mid-1970s. Um, there was this Senate hearing called the Church Committee. Um, President Gerald Ford ends up, uh, you know, commissioning um, investigations into the CIA, and this comes to light. Um, and so the American public are aware that the government has been capturing and drugging them for tens of years at this point. So it wasn't even trying to be hidden? Other, Like, how did it not get covered up right away? 
I mean, so it, it was technically this had been happening since 1953. So it was 20 years before it did come to light. But, you know, those types of secrets tend to get out because they are obviously deeply controversial. I think it's the New York Times that initially makes accusations against uh, the CIA for experimenting on people. And then once that type of critique is out there, people start looking into it more and more. Um, and again, the, the U.S. Senate, for what it's worth, not the entire government trying to cover this up. There are members of the Senate that, uh, you know, are on this commission that are, um, you know, designed to uncover what exactly happened here. Um, I think Ford signs legislation or the government makes efforts to try and um, stop things like this from happening again, basically saying, like, you can't uh, experiment on people without their consent. But again, getting into that conspiracy theory kind of lane, it, it does make you nervous because it's not like what they were doing in the 50s and 60s was exactly legal. There were already rules against those types of experimentation, that type of experimentation, and they did it anyway. So it, I don't know about you. I don't necessarily feel comforted to know that, oh, but there was another set of laws that banned it because if they did it once, who's to say that they wouldn't do it again? I don't know. Hopefully not. Not to I, bum everyone out. There's certain things that get like released after 20 years 30 years yeah how what is that and how does that happen so, so like uh declassifying documents yeah like is there a law that states after 30 years things get declassified it's a good question i can't cite um a specific law off the top of my head but i believe i, I want to say yes in a general sense there are um, time limits on on how long a, a government document can be completely kept a secret. Um, and is that for the safety of the people to keep the government in check? Yeah, exactly. So there have been laws like the Freedom of Information Act, um, which have come out and is are designed to help these types of documents become public knowledge. Unless it's a matter time. of national security. Right. And that's usually why there's a time limit on it, right? Like we can... You know, we we are maybe a little more privileged to know the ins and outs of Pearl Harbor now because it's 2023, right? It's not like immediately a threat to American security, whereas those types of documents wouldn't have been published in the 1940s. Um, I think even with the MK Ultra stuff, uh, as recently as like 2002, 2003, somewhere in the early 2000s, they had another kind of round of documents be released that further confirmed these reports and these, um, you know, these experimentations that were happening and stuff. So yeah, every so often you get um, uh, a document dump, essentially, which just continues to confirm the U.S. doing terrible things to the like out of nowhere it just comes well you know it, there's a schedule to it right and so for people not like you and i we're not necessarily keeping tabs on this on a day-to-day -day basis but journalists people who are uh whose job it is to to track the u.s government they i'm sure are very aware of when these things start to come to light do you read the documents yourself um I, i'll read them sometimes for the purpose of like you know looking at sources for my class and stuff like that but no i don't i don't comb through the boxes of documents i'll <laughs> I'll trust the experts on that one. Right. Yeah. Wow. It's interesting. In um in the first uh, Call of Duty Black Ops, I remember this just because when I was uh, in high school, that was like the big game. Um, the main character in that game is uh, a like a part of the MK Ultra experiments. Like he. Oh yeah. Yeah. In the story, I don't know if you ever played that game. The main character is like in that chair in the main menu or whatever. Apparently, that's in the game something to do with MK Ultra. As a high schooler, I, I didn't even think about it or notice it, but um, as an adult now, I realize that's what they were referencing. Right. Really interesting. What's the Confederate statue conspiracy? Sure, yeah. So Controversy. Less conspiracy, yeah. More controversy. Um, you know, in, in recent years, right, uh, especially after, um, uh, you know, 2020 and the BLM protests and stuff, um, typically when you have those 
types of major social um, justice movements, you have a, a reevaluation of our past. Um, and, you know, it's, it's not exactly a, a secret that the United States has hundreds of Confederate monuments um, that are just up uh, in public spaces across the country. Now, typically, these will be statues uh, of Confederate leaders like a Robert E. Lee or, um, you, you know, a Stonewall Jackson, things like that. Um, but they also can take the form of like schools being named after Confederate leaders or having the Confederate flag being flown in, on like public spaces and government buildings and all that. Um, and typically when you... It's still... I thought it's illegal to be flown. No, not illegal. Certainly not illegal. Um, oh. You have had certain... Like I think the big one um, going back in 2017 was like the South Carolina State House had a Confederate flag um, on their premises. And that that's since been taken down as a part of this kind of reflection and reevaluation of like what what we're trying to promote as a society but definitely not illegal um but yeah anyway so there's a huge conversation over like should we keep these statues like should they be um kept up or put in a museum or destroyed altogether you know and everyone has their opinion on on what the right course of action is for people that want to support those statues being kept up a lot of the times you hear them make the argument that these statues are a part of our history right they're from the time period and therefore if you get rid of it you're erasing history um and what's interesting to note is that for the vast majority of these monuments, they are not from the Civil War era at all. They weren't put up during the 1860s. They weren't put up during the Civil War. They weren't put up during Reconstruction. In fact, there are two moments in American history where we see a kind of peak of these statues being created. The first are in the 1910s, which is the time period where the second revival of the KKK is taking place. Which, by the way, this is the KKK. The second KKK is the KKK you usually think of, like white pointed hats and stuff like that. Um, the other inflection point for these monuments going up are the 1960s. Again, the 60s, which is the same time as the civil rights movement. So when people make that that argument about how, oh, it's history, it's not. Or at least it's not the history that they think it is. It's the history of kind of reactions coming from white supremacists during these like moments of social justice movements popping up and they're almost used as a way of propping up white supremacy or you know for what it's worth that would be my opinion on it um but yeah i just think it's interesting you know like oh like robert e lee statue has to be up because it's it's history that statue was created in 1954 buddy like the confederacy had been gone for a long time at this point right yeah are there any statues that were up during that time from the 1860s? Sure, yeah, I, I couldn't name one specifically, but there are, you know, I'll um, I'll send you actually a chart and it shows like when these statues were created. There are a couple in the 60s, but uh, the 1860s, I should say. Uh, but again, the majority, the ones that <clears throat> are being argued about uh, most commonly out in the public, those are all 1900 onward. I do, mean, well after the, the Civil War ended. Do the textbooks now cover the past few years of people taking down the statues? Not so much. So again, again, for like most teachers, at least teachers that I uh, in my department and myself, it's not like we're really like using the textbook that much. It, we've gone away from like, OK, like homework tonight is read chapter six. So I think, um, geez, the one the textbook I use for for my U.S. history classes goes up to like 2014 or so. So it doesn't quite get to like the real modern stuff. But in my class, I try to get up to as close to current history as I can. Last year, I went all the way up and through the Trump administration, so trying to get as, as current as possible. Wow. But it gets it gets tough when you get to current events, not only because 
it gets more controversial because people are like living it in the in the moment. Uh, but also, you need time to reflect. Like, you need time to 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 let the the records of of people of leaders kind of be analyzed and, and see how it impacts people 10, 20, 30 years later. Um, that's why when you look at like presidential ranking lists and things like that, not to, to give it away in case you wanted to make any guesses, but you don't get like the modern presidents. They're not the ones that you see at the top or bottom of these lists, right? Because just there's not enough time that's passed. Who is the number one ranked I, would you care to make a guess? I feel like you could, even if you're not like super plugged into U.S. history. Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln's number one. Like almost, as far as I've seen, undisputed number one overall. Abolishing the, slavery. Yeah. Emancipation Proclamation kept the union together during the Civil War. I guess it didn't technically because it did break apart, but stitched the union back together. It saw us through our greatest domestic crisis we've ever seen. Um, was genuinely a really great politician and a really great leader. Like, just knew the right buttons to push and, and how to push them. So, yeah, he's undisputed number one. Who's the worst ranked president? So, uh, also coming from the Civil War era, um, typically your bottom three, and this is a little more in flux, right? Like, if, you know... I've seen some lists that like will include Trump, for example, but not taking the modern. Right. Yeah. D taking the modern ones out, because, again, as I was saying, I think you need that time to reflect. Um, you get guys like James Buchanan, who is the president right before Lincoln. Um, he ends up uh, he ends up essentially most historians blame him for allowing the Civil War to kind of happen, which is not entirely fair because it was a number of things, but he oversees it happening. You get Pierce, who's a president in the 1850s, also blamed with not lowering the tensions of the of the Civil War. And you get Andrew Johnson, who was, of course, impeached and followed up after um, Lincoln was assassinated. Oh, he was impeached. He was impeached, yeah. was uh, uh, Essentially, he gets into fights with... Uh, uh, radical Republicans in Congress at the time, which is that's not me saying that they're radical. That was like kind of the historical term used for them. These are the most like pro-abolitionist figures um, within government. Johnson's interesting because he's actually a um, a Southerner. I, I want to say he's from Kentucky or Tennessee. He's kind of on those like border states, um, but he ends up being Lincoln's vice president again, just to show you how pragmatic Lincoln is. You know, Lincoln, who's viewed as being the abolition guy recognizes that if he, you know, creates an administration that's full of abolitionists, that's just going to serve to further uh, divide the United States. And so he brings in this kind of, I don't want to say pro-Southerner because he didn't join the Confederacy, but he's certainly a Southern sympathizer. You know, he's a guy who's definitely prejudiced and racist himself. To he, try and bring everyone together. Yeah, try to stitch people together. But then once Lincoln's gone, now you've got this kind of like softy on the Confederacy as the leader of the United States. And he gets into all sorts of battles with um, uh, with Congress because of that. Was there an election with Lincoln? Yes. It's the tipping point. It, the way that I pitch it in my classes that Lincoln is finally the straw that breaks the camel's back for the South. Um, you have in Southern uh, declarations of secession, they literally will say it, this is because of a number of things. One of the things they list is like because a guy who is hostile to slavery has just been elected. Um, so, yeah, his election in 1860 is the final straw. Did he run against someone else in the North, though? Or was he just the guy? So, yeah, I mean, gosh, politics is really complex during that time period. You you essentially have, there are other people that are in the mix, right? But you have the Republican Party, which is 
really brand new. They had only been around for one previous election in 1856. They're made up of a bunch of northerners, almost exclusively, who are number one most animated about being anti-slavery. You then have the Democrats, but the Democrats are split between two different like types of Democrats. You've got the northern Democrats who are kind of like Andrew Johnson, right? They're not they're not super pro-slavery insofar as they're trying to expand it, but they're also okay with it. They're like, listen, I'm not going to waste my time trying to forcibly expand it, but if it naturally expands, I don't care, right? So you got those type of Northern Democrats, and then you have Southern Democrats who are just pro-slavery in every way, shape, and form. They want to expand it. They want to pass amendments that will solidify it uh, and make it you know, uh, be an institution that will never be challenged again. Because of that split between the Democrats, the Northern and Southern Democrats, you get the Republicans, Lincoln, who's able to kind of clean up and win the election. And the second he wins in November of 1860, by December of that same year, you have South Carolina dipping. They're out. They will uh, formally leave the Union. And then it's a parade of other Southern states after that. Yeah. Are you familiar with the James Buchanan law lore? You, you texted me this. I've never heard this in my life. Did you look it up? I actually haven't. Have you? Oh, I no. Know. I was hoping you would. I'm sorry. I, I can't teach you about this one. Yeah. <laughs> They're saying I, that he was the only gay president. Interesting. I, I've i not heard that. Um, yeah. I don't know. That's certainly not why he's ranked at the bottom of lists. It's, it's because he uh, was pretty inept as a president. But that's an interesting one. What about when Teddy Roosevelt got shot during his speech? What a guy. Teddy Roosevelt is... Teddy Roosevelt might be who we have to blame or celebrate, I guess, depending on your perspective, um, for like what modern masculinity looks like. Oh, because yeah? He is the president that is... Uh, you know, is an outdoorsman. He's a survivalist. You know, he is a huge hunter. I mean, you see photographs of the White House in this time period and <laughs> like the amount of heads of animals on the wall in the uh, White House are insane. He's known to take like martial arts lessons in the White House as well. So, I mean, he is just uh, he's a brawler, right? Um, the modern Joe Rogan. Exactly. I think that's what most people say. <laughs> Would make for a very interesting Joe Rogan uh, um uh, podcast guest if he was around but at any rate uh, in 1912 um, Roosevelt at that point he had already been president um, and he ended up uh, after two terms he didn't run again um, because he was more or less respecting George Washington's precedent that he said of only running for two terms and then being done that wasn't a law at that time you could run forever um, but he followed the precedent so he's not uh, not going to be running for president in what is it 1908 when did it become a law uh, after FDR, after World War II. So essentially after FDR ends up being president for four terms, um, de excuse me, Republicans especially, but also Democrats realize that, hey, that might not be the best to have the same guy be president, you know, 12 years or whatever. Did he only run because of the war, though? That's why he got those four terms? Y yeah, I think, I mean, he is. Uh, he wasn't trying to do it. I mean, he was definitely trying. He ran for president, to be clear. Uh, um, so he wanted to be president. Um, we didn't mention it, but FDR is usually the third most popular president uh, across uh, you know those types of rankings. Excuse me. Um, 
And yeah, so he comes in with the Great Depression and then oversees that and then is overseeing kind of the buildup of the war in Europe. And then, of course, we get involved in the war. So because of these major crises, crises, he sees himself as like the guy for the job. He did an exceptional job as well. So, you know, he got elected fair and square. But after that, you know, everyone kind of came together and was like, you know, it worked well with him. But what if we got a James Buchanan four times in in a row or something like that? So anyway, though, so Roosevelt, he voluntarily is not going to run for president in 1908. Uh, To try and give you the the quick version of this, he more or less ushers in his successor, who's Taft, um, William Howard Taft. And Taft is supposed to be like Roosevelt's kind of double. Um, If you look at the political cartoons from this time period, I'll send you a couple of them. They are easily my favorite. They are hilarious. You know, just pictures of Taft being a little kid that Roosevelt's holding in his arms, trying to show that Taft is more or less just going to continue the Roosevelt policies. What ends up happening is that Taft is much more conservative than Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt is a progressive. He's a reformer, um, part of the reason why he's so popular. And so by 1912, now Taft's been in the office for four years, and instead of being best friends, Roosevelt and Taft are, are beefing. They don't like each other at all. Um, you also get Woodrow Wilson. He's running as a Democrat. So there's three people involved here. Um, Roosevelt, while he's out on the campaign trail, is going to give a speech, you know, uh, in Milwaukee uh, specifically. Um, you know, just a normal speech trying to get people to vote for him. Um, vote for him? Vote for him, yeah. He's running again. He's running as a third party at this point. So he's broken away. Uh, Taft is going to be the Republican nominee. Wilson is the Democrat. And uh, Roosevelt ends up uh, leading the Progressive Party, which is better known as the Bull Moose Party, because they're supposed to be strong like bull mooses. And I guess this story actually backs that up. Um, Roosevelt ends up, I think he's getting into a car. He's like going to the speech. And this guy whose name escapes me uh, ends up running up to him and shoots him uh, in the chest. Now, this bullet, fortunately for Teddy, will pass through two things before reaching his body, passes through his glasses case, uh, which is like a little metal tin, and then passes through the speech that he had prepared, which he had fortunately folded over twice. So it wasn't just like paper, it was folded over, and it goes through both papers and lodges itself in his chest. Now, this is, like I was saying, Teddy being, like, kind of the epitome of mascul- masculinity. The Andrew Tate. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> no, I, wouldn't, I would never want to call him that. Um, but he, uh, he, you know, I assume stumbles or hits the ground, but then stands up. He's bleeding, but he recognizes that he's not coughing up blood, and he correctly assumes that the bullet, therefore, hasn't punctured his lung. And so he's like, I'm fine. I'm good. Finishes his speech. Yeah, he ends up calling the person over who shot him. At this point, that guy has been tackled by, you know, Secret Service, essentially. Um, And he looks at the guy and he's like, why would you do that? And the guy apparently was silent. He had nothing to say for himself. And he's like, all right, like, take this poor soul away. And he actually calls for everyone to calm down uh, and not kill this guy in the streets. I mean, it it was looking for a quick second like this would-be assassin was going to be kind of publicly lynched. And Roosevelt's like, no, 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 I'm fine. Don't worry. I, You know, I'm all good. Let's bring him to a, you know, bring him to the police and let's not kill him out here in the streets. So he ends up giving the speech. I think he talks for 86 minutes afterwards and then ends up accepting uh, medical attention uh, following that point. He does a full podcast? Full podcast with a bullet in his chest. By the way, he ends up, leaving that bullet in his body he they do not medically remove it because it's, it's more dangerous to take it out exactly and funnily enough the the president that 
Roosevelt ended up taking over for William McKinley. Um, Roosevelt was McKinley's vice president. McKinley is assassinated himself. And there's a quick second where McKinley, it looks like he's going to recover. Wait, he's a, he was president and assassinated? Yeah, McKinley was uh, assassinated. This is a time period of like political assassination being kind of a common thing. It happens in 1881 with Garfield, happens in 1901 with McKinley, uh, and then, of course, attempted to happen to the former president, Roosevelt, here in 1912. There are three assassinations? Attempts, attempts, yeah. I mean, two successful. Two successful, well, uh, there have been five successful, right? You got Lincoln, of course, the first one. You've got Garfield, you got McKinley, you have JFK, what uh, four, right? I can count. Um, so yeah, uh, there's been a lot, and then there's been attempts um, on. I think Andrew, jo- not Andrew Johnson, Andrew Jackson uh, had an attempt against him. Roosevelt um, and Reagan uh, had his assassination attempt as well. So it's not completely uncommon. Um, but to, to finish my thought, McKinley is shot, and then they take the bullet out. And he's starting to recover, but then because of that medical procedure, he gets infected, and then he ends up dying from the infection itself. So they deem it as safer to just leave the bullet in Roosevelt. And he lives out the rest of his life until, I think he goes until like the early 1920s, maybe late 1910s, uh, and he just lives with a bullet. So the guy is absolutely hardcore. That's crazy. Yeah, he's a wild guy. What about the first female U.S. president? Uh, I mean, it hasn't happened yet, um, but potentially I saw on TikTok the there was. No, no first female president. Um, we've had, obviously, Hillary Clinton was nominated and, um, uh, you know, got close insofar as she was uh, the second, the runner-up. Um, you have, oh my gosh, I'm spacing. There's a woman in the late 80s, early 90s. I think late 80s. I'm forgetting her name. Bad history teacher. Um, she ran? She is uh, on the ticket, I believe. I don't know if she ran. What about Chernobyl? Are you familiar with that? No, I'm not. This is out of my expertise. I haven't finished the, the TV show yet. Oh, you have it? It's no. so good. You know what bothers me about that? Tell me. <laughs> I, I don't like that they're all British in the show. It's Are supposed- they? Yeah. They all have, like, British accents. Or, or like, um, Skarsgård, what is he, Swedish? So he's got, like, a Swedish accent. But, like, they're all not Russian. And they're supposed to be playing Russian people. And that, I don't know. I just Isn't don't the whole I... thing captions, though? No, no. I mean, they're speaking English. And it, it's it's always that thing. is like, okay, do you go for, like, speaking the native tongue and then have subtitles? Or do you just do English but with an accent? And they just did English but with no accent. And I don't <laughs> know. It always, like, suspend, it, it, have a hard time suspending disbelief with that. American history through film and the pros and cons of it. Yeah, so we were just talking about Chernobyl, or you asked me about it, right? And I was saying that um, the the lack of accents bother me. This is something that I've been trying to include in my history classes this year is, um, you know, not not to be a stereotypical history teacher, but I like to put on a movie from time to time. And Is that when you need a break? You know, <laughs> I'm not going to say that I don't benefit heavily from those days, but I, I did really push myself this year to be like, I'm not just going to do this for the sake of having an easy day or two. Like, I want to try and get something out of it. When um, you have a sub, do you leave a movie for them? N- it, it, that is the easiest thing to do, to be clear. Uh, but that, but that's the problem is I like these movies, so I actually like being there on those days. Because I like watching and like seeing their kids' reactions to films and stuff like that. Um, but anyway, so like I wanted to do something a little more meaningful with it this year, rather than just like, here's a fill-in-the-blank, you know, kind of sheet as you watch. I'm asking like, you know, kind of more in-depth questions. And like one of the big questions was, are these movies, which most of the time are are deeply inaccurate, um, 
are they still helpful? Like, are they still like beneficial and, and help teach us about the time period? Um, and I, I think that there's a real, you know, kind of give and take with it, right? You think of The Patriot. Have you seen The Patriot? Great movie. So inaccurate. Not even close to, to the accuracy that you would expect. First of all, the British in that movie are comically evil. Like, I don't know if you remember the scene where uh, the, the lead British um, uh, officer locks all those people in that church and he burns the church down with them inside. Uh, that was literally inspired by a Nazi war crime that took place in actuality in France during the 1940s. Like the Nazis did that to like a French town. And this filmmaker in the, you know, 2000 depicts the British doing that. So it's like. So that, that didn't happen at all. Didn't happen. No recorded evidence that the British uh, military redcoats behaved with that level of brutality during the American uh, Revolutionary War. Now, it's not to say that they didn't commit atrocities or that they didn't commit war crimes as we would know them today, but certainly that particular example, which is, like I said, at a, at a, a level that's just horrendous to think about, that wasn't happening. But in those movies, it's much more, it's much easier to sell a movie with a clear good guy and a bad guy, right? So I remember at the end of that film asking my students, like, oh, like, what did you think of it? Did you like it? And for the most part, everyone was like, yeah, that was, a, that was a good movie. It was entertaining. It's a good action movie. And I was telling them, like, it's so inaccurate. But, like, here's the thing. I could play for you, like, a 12-part Ken's Burn documentary on the American Revolution, and you'd all hate it. It'd be boring. You'd be falling asleep, right? But it would be real history. It'd be accurate. You'd get all of the good details and none of the fluff. Or we could watch this 90-minute action flick with Mel Gibson where he's killing a bunch of redcoats and you're going to actually be engaged. So, like, is the trade-off worth it, right? Is it worth having a bit of historical inaccuracy in our films if it means that the broader public is going to um, engage with those movies and they're yeah. going to actually watch something? Hell yeah, right? I, I, I actually think so, right? Like, I, I don't know. I, maybe it's not surprising, but you might think, like, a history teacher I'd want only accuracy. I, I think that entertainment is a good stepping stone right and uh, i think at the time you hear this with a lot of films but i know with the patriot specifically um mel gibson was asked about this back in 2000 when he was promoting the movie and he had something to say to the extent of like yeah i hope that people get interested and then they pick up a book and actually read about what happened but use this movie as like the jumping off point um and i can say as someone who played patriot and then later in the year i played lincoln from 2012 the spielberg movie that movie is really accurate and it is very dry, very boring. Kids were not happy with that one. Was all of that was accurate though in Lincoln? <laughs> pretty, pretty accurate. I mean, obviously, there's always a couple of liberties taken, but compared to like a Patriot uh, or like um, Hamilton, the musical or whatever, Lincoln was much more accurate um, and paid closer attention and respect to historical detail compared to those other films, which are entertainment first, right? But again, kids didn't like it as much. What's a war movie that is incredibly inaccurate? Inaccurate. Inaccurate. Uh, that is a good one. Because I'm immediately when I'm thinking of war movies, I'm thinking of like a Saving Private Ryan, um, which is very accurate, uh, especially that opening beach scene um, is is fantastic. I'm thinking of like 1917. You see that one a few years ago? Love that movie. That's great. Accurate? I would say pretty darn accurate as, um, as a general rule. Um... I've heard um, I've heard this recent Napoleon movie is a little inaccurate. Um, I don't know about the war pieces of that more compared to his personal life. I actually haven't seen it yet, but I've heard that one's pretty inaccurate. Um, Black Hawk Down. Also, 
I don't want to say I can't I can't speak to its accuracy. I think it's accurate from what I've heard, but I haven't seen it myself. So that's the hard part is like when you go in knowing the history and you're sitting there like nitpicking things and all that. But yeah, yeah. What about Mount Rushmore? Mount Rushmore. Um, so do did you know I can put it this way? Did you know that there is a, a good portion of the American population today that views Mount Rushmore as nothing more than graffiti? No. Yeah, that would be the Sioux population, the Native American population that still claims that land in South Dakota as their own uh, land. Um, there is. Did we take it and give it to them? Yeah. So, long story short, right? Uh, in the post Civil War era, um, you get an effort on behalf of the U.S. government to more or less go out into our Western territory that we've claimed, uh, and you know, essentially. Not necessarily develop every square inch, but kind of bring it under our control. And that means that you have to deal with the native populations that are already living there and have been there for like hundreds of years at that point, thousands of years in some cases. Um, in, I believe, 1868, you get this treaty, Treaty of Laramie, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. And this is supposed to be a deal with the um, Native American population in South Dakota and the U.S. government. And they say you can have, you know, this territory essentially can be yours. We're not going to bother you. You stay there. We'll stay over here. It'll be good. Well, a couple of years later into the 1870s, you get some uh, American, you know, kind of settlers going out in the region. They end up finding gold in the Black Hills, which is in like the lower corner of South Dakota. And because all of a sudden there's gold there, the U.S. government comes back and says, actually, we want this territory back. So they take it. There's a number of bloody conflicts and wars. And it's, um, you know, just one of many examples of the U.S. kind of ripping up treaties that they sign with native populations. Fast forward to the 1920s, 30s, 40s, you have a mountain in uh, the Black Hills area in South Dakota that was claimed by the Sioux but taken by the Americans, which they are going to kind of make a, a more or less a tourist destination out of. This mountain is originally called by native tribes as the, um, the Six Grandfathers, and it's that mountain that gets turned into Mount Rushmore. And so... You have a lot of Native Americans today that say that this is no different than if someone were to take a paint can and, and you know, run it over the side of a building or something like that. You've taken a mountain that's like precious to us and means a lot to our people in our history and you've carved the faces of men that we don't like. Right. And we view as as hostile to our very existence. Um I think in 1980, and at the very least, the 1980s, there was a Supreme Court dispute between the the Sioux tribe and the U.S. government. And the government ended up uh, awarding them like $102 million as a payment for taking this land and making Mount Rushmore out of it. Um, that payment was rejected by the native population saying, we don't want your money. We want the land back. This is crazy. Yeah. And they're still in legal fights today trying to get the U.S. government to give that land back. It will not happen. I can guarantee you that. But or I shouldn't guarantee it. Anything could change, I suppose. But I doubt it would happen anytime soon. But even today, I think adjusted for inflation, that payment now is like over a billion dollars. And the the tribes are, are just saying, no, like we're not taking it. We want the land. doesn't matter how much money you are going to give us. And would they deconstruct Mount Rushmore? That is a good question. I, I don't know. Right. Because, you know, I guess full circle. Right. Going back to to mon Confederate monuments and things like that. Right. Would you use that as evidence of like hey look what 
they did to like our precious land would use that as like a memorial of sorts right would use it to learn from it or would you dynamite that thing immediately and return it to just a natural mountainside um but yeah you should take i'll I'll send you this as well a couple of before and after photographs of that mountain uh it's it's pretty crazy how did they construct mount rushmore so explosives to to get large pieces of rock um you know dislodged and if they had to have a particular chunk come out they would do that and you know, outside of using explosives for the finer details, it's men suspended in the air with various tools and they're chipping away at it. it took over 10 years uh, to complete. Um, but yeah, it is um, it, it's something to think about when you visit that that monument in that portion of the United States Park. There is that there are people who like don't want us to visit and view it very much as a, a disrespectful thing, which I don't know. I think that that controversy is always super interesting. Is that the largest monument that we've ever constructed, Mount Rushmore? Like in terms of a natural monument, I want to say it is because I can't, I mean, I can't think of any like, you know, carved monument that would be bigger. There's actually um, in Georgia, essentially a Confederate route, Mount Rushmore. Um, in Just outside of Atlanta, there's this mountain called Stone Mountain. Um, and in the 1910s, so right around that time period I was telling you where Confederate monuments were starting to pop up, you have um, a woman who becomes kind of a founding member member of this group called the Daughters of the Confederacy. And basically their whole organization is trying to have the Confederate kind of legend live on. They commission this monument to be carved in the side of Stone Mountain. And you get Stonewall Jackson, Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, and Robert E. Lee on horseback that is majestically marching across the side of this mountain here. It's still there today. Uh, in 2020, there was renewed calls to get rid of it. Um, and it, you know, it's constantly fought over. You have people all the time going there, either as a part of groups looking to protest against it or white supremacist groups today that use it as like a rallying point, but deeply controversial. In fact, I think some of the same people that worked on Rushmore also worked on this Confederate monument. As is it well. as big? Um, it's not quite as big. It's a little more like, where Rushmore is is like 3D, um, the Stone Mountain one is a little flatter. Like there's texture to it, obviously, but it's kind of etched on the side rather than carved out of the mountain, if that makes sense. And who's on it? Uh, again, you got uh, Stonewall Jackson, you've got Jefferson Davis, and you got Robert E. Lee. So Jackson and uh, Lee are the you know two most prominent uh, Confederate uh, military leaders, and then Jefferson Davis would be the president of the Confederacy. That's bananas. Yeah, it's it's wild. Um, it, it it is it is very wild, and it's even wilder to think of like what the appropriate response is. Like, how do you handle that today? Right. Wow. I'm all historyed out. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you didn't fall asleep, no. uh, which I, I take that as a great compliment. So, <laughs> And if anyone's still here, give this video a like. Yeah, that'd what be great. What are you doing? Yeah. Let us know. Do you want Jimmy to come back? I want to know what other topics that I missed yeah. that we can go over for another podcast because I feel like you're a whole wealth of knowledge. Please ask away. Yeah. If you've got uh, something that you... Uh, you want to be taught? Um, I'll uh, I'll do my best. <laughs> yeah, sick, Jimmy. Thanks so much for coming. Lads who game is gonna be linked down below. Go check them out. Are you guys on YouTube? Uh, no YouTube, but uh, everywhere you can find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, and the like. Uh, and yeah, we would be happy to have your uh, your ears take a listen. Is there anything else happening in the new year at school for you? Anything N crazy? Nothing crazy in the new year for school. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm. You just... said you had AJ McLean 
at your school though? Yeah, couple couple months ago, uh, AJ McLean was a guest, uh, uh, our celebrity judge for the uh, the Dancing with the Stars show that we put on with our our dance team. Um, so I, I was a part of the teacher group that danced with that. Um, so yeah, I guess uh, as a as a claim to fame, I can say I danced in front of AJ McLean. Have and, you had uh, any uh, food fights at your school? No food fights uh, at, at Westlake. I, I feel like that's also something that's like a thing of the past. We don't really have a cafeteria. We're like, we're, you know, West Coast school. It's all outside, you know, so that that traditional like all of us locked in one room for lunch is not we're spread out. Interesting. <laughs> cool. Well, Jimmy, thanks so much for coming by. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Joe. American history. Lightweights. Woo. Out. Sick. That was great. Awesome. I, I hope. Uh, yeah. I hope you enjoyed it. I didn't bore you. No, not at all. That was amazing. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.